Man's Highest Good There was a time when the summum bonum, the supreme good, was not only the highest and ultimate goal of human conduct, but also the major concern of ethical theory by philosophers. The formal consideration of the summum bonum has disappeared. The practical concern is more intense than ever, except that it is now a political and sociological rather than a philosophical concern. The Marxist and Fabian socialist versions of the summum bonum have largely displaced the scholastic and Calvinistic concepts. Hauschier's comment on the summum bonum makes clear the problem from the standpoint of modern philosophy. A term applied to an ultimate end of human conduct, the worth of which is intrinsically and substantively good. It is some end that is not subordinate to anything else. Happiness, pleasure, virtue, self-realization, power, obedience to the voice of duty, to conscience, to the will of God, goodwill, perfection, have been claimed as ultimate aims of human conduct in the history of ethical theory. Those who interpret all ethical problems in terms of a conception of good they hold to be highest ignore all complexities of conduct, focus attention wholly upon goals towards which deeds are directed, restrict their study by constructing every good in one single pattern, center all goodness in one model, and thus reduce all other types of good to their model. What Hauschier is in effect saying is that, since he does not believe in the sovereign God, there is therefore no possible focus or center of life. The universe is for him a blindly evolving and rather miscellaneous collection of things. Since things have no coherence, they can have no focus, and to speak therefore of a supreme good is to be both arbitrary as well as to ignore all other aspects of reality. Logically, in fact, Hauschier can only speak of a relative good, never of an absolute good, nor of a pattern or purpose to life. The answer thus must be sought elsewhere. At the beginning of his Confessions, St. Augustine declared of God, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Clearly, for Augustine, God and God alone is man's highest good. Previously, in pagan thought, man's supreme good had been seen in humanistic terms. Usually, the supreme good was a statist social order, which was assumed to be the incarnation or manifestation of justice. The individual and his will was also seen as the highest good. The history of the ancient world is the wreckage of these faiths. With biblical faith, a new and different concept of the supreme good dominated life and philosophy. Bovink has described the problem of man's highest good very aptly. The conclusion, therefore, is that of Augustine, who said that the heart of man was created for God, and that it cannot find rest unless it rests in his father's heart. Hence, all men are really seeking after God, as Augustine also declared, but they do not all seek him in the right way, nor at the right place. They seek him down below, and he is up above. They seek him on the earth, and he is in the heaven. They seek him afar, and he is nearby. They seek him in money, in property, in fame, in power, and in passion, and he is to be found in the high and the holy places, and with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Isaiah 57.15 But they do seek him if haply they might feel after him and find him. Acts 17.27 They seek him, and at the same time they flee him. They have no interest in a knowledge of his ways, and yet they cannot do without him. They feel themselves attracted to God and at the same time repelled by him. In this, as Pascal so profoundly pointed out, 
consists the greatness and the miserableness of man. He longs for truth and is false by nature. He yearns for rest and throws himself from one diversion upon another. He pants for a permanent and eternal bliss and seizes on the pleasures of a moment. He seeks for God and loses himself in the creature. He is a born son of the house, and he feeds on husks of the swine in a strange land. He forsakes the fountain of living waters and hews out broken cisterns that can hold no water, Jeremiah 2.13. He is as a hungry man who dreams that he is eating, and when he awakes, finds that his soul is empty. And he is like a thirsty man who dreams that he is drinking, and when he awakes, finds that he is faint and that his soul has appetite, Isaiah 29.8. Before going further, let us note that some would say that Bovink's statement is beautiful in language and poor in fact, for to what extent can it be said to apply to the modern man or to tribal men in backward cultures? These men seem to give no evidence of a burning need to know God. Clearly, they are not interested in the living God, but their lives nonetheless are given over to the service of a God, a false God. Portney's complaint is an example of a sickly mysticism of sex, in which the female genital organs are like a magnet draining the man with an insatiable urge. The urge is not physical sex, nor is it physiological. It is a mystical, religious urge, which only intensifies itself because it can never be satisfied. The result is mania and radical discontent. The same moral sickness marks primitive cultures, which are really decadent ones. Masters has said that the North American Indians, for example, who are for some reason supposed by the ignorant to have been paragons of manliness and repositories of all stoic virtues, were notorious sexual exploiters of children, using very young children, boys or girls indifferently, for their pleasures. In my own experience among Indians, I saw that the Indians, a people of mental abilities and calibre, usually were, unless Christian, so radically absorbed with sex at all ages that it was a detriment, together with liquor, to effective action as individuals. This absorption increased with age, and was not physiological, but rather religious. Behind this absorption lies a deeper problem than sex. It is the apostate religious dream of man to be as God, to be his own God, determining good and evil for himself. The more man's science gives him power, the more his sexual immorality gives him sexual freedom, and the more his revolt from God leaves him free to follow the imagination of his heart, the more insatiable he becomes. Gratification increases insatiability. William Blake, in one of the engravings in For the Sexes, The Gates of Paradise, 1793 and 1818, depicts a man with a ladder reaching to the moon and himself on the first step upward. The title is I Want, I Want. The title is significant. With a ladder against the moon, the wish being realized, the cry is not I have, but I want. There is no rest in gratification. Yesterday's paradise is today's hell because man rejecting God is still content with nothing less than God. The humanist, having made man his God, then plots the murder of man as a step towards a better man-god. In the broader aspects, therefore, Bovink is right, but God as the highest good needs more precise definition. By defining this summum bonum as the vision of God, scholasticism paved the way for mysticism and a non-historical quest for God in private experience. The Westminster Catechism is right in declaring that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In concrete terms, what does this mean? 
The answer is in Scripture, but it cannot be found by trying to find an ethics of the Bible apart from the triune God of the Bible. More directly, the ethics of Jesus cannot be separated from the person of Jesus when we try to define the highest good, for then we would have an abstract and non-theistic good which finally has no way of being defined as good. Man, moreover, cannot be the judge of what is his highest good, because, as Van Til has pointed out, even in its original perfect condition, the moral consciousness of man was derivative and not the ultimate source of information as to what is good. This is all the more true of man in his fallen estate. Now this doctrine of the total depravity of man makes it perfectly plain that the moral consciousness of man as he is today cannot be the source of information about what is good, or about what is the standard of the good, or about what is the true nature of the will which is to strive for the good. It would surely seem plain enough that men have to choose on this point between the Christian and non-Christian position. It is this point particularly that makes it necessary for the Christian to maintain, without any apology and without any concession, that it is Scripture, and Scripture only, in the light of which all moral questions must be answered. Scripture as an external revelation became necessary because of the sin of man. No man living can even put the moral question as he ought to put it, or ask the moral questions as he ought to ask them, unless he does so in the light of Scripture. Man cannot, of himself, truly face the moral question, let alone answer it. The regenerated consciousness submits itself to the Word of God and tests all things in terms of the moral verdict of Scripture. In thus considering man's highest good, we must declare, Van Til points out, that God himself is naturally the end of all man's activity. Man's whole personality was to be a manifestation and revelation, on a finite scale, of the personality of God. Moreover, when we use the common expression that the world, and man especially, was created to glorify God, it is necessary to make a distinction between the religious and the ethical meaning of these words. In a most general way, we may say that God is man's summum bonum. Man must seek God's glory in every act that he does. Yet there is a difference of emphasis between seeking the glory of God religiously and seeking it ethically. To seek the glory of God ethically is to seek it indirectly. This distinction, however, needs explanation and qualification. In explanation, we want to make clear that we do not mean the distinction to be taken strictly and absolutely. There is a sense in which all of man's activities glorify God indirectly only. Man's activities fall in the temporal sphere. God alone is eternal. This means that, strictly speaking, God's glory cannot be increased. No temporal being can add anything to the eternal being. In this sense, then, all activity of man can only indirectly glorify God. The glorification of God on the part of man must always take place in the temporal sphere. And it is this fact that should be kept in mind when the distinction is frequently made that religion is directed toward God while ethics is directed toward man. This is only relatively true. In one sense, all of man's activity is directed toward God. Man's ethics is not only founded upon a religious fact, but is itself religious. Though we do not mean it in the way that modernism means it, it is true that in seeking the welfare of our fellow men, we seek the glory of God. For this reason, too, we cannot make an absolute distinction between the religious attitude and the moral attitude on the part of man. It is sometimes said that in the case of religion, we have adoration of God while in the case of ethics, we have obedience to God. 
This is only relatively true. We need obedience in our adoration, and if we are truly obedient, we adore God. The kingdom of God is man's highest good. By the term kingdom of God, we mean the realized program of God for man. This means that man should realize himself as God's vice-regent in history. To do this, man must become spontaneous in his reaction to God's purpose and self-determined in his obedience to God's determination or plan for man. This program of God, which is man's highest good, includes not only the saving of individual souls, but also the subjection of all things to Christ and his absolute and comprehensive ethical standard of perfection, while realizing that this perfection is only attained with his second coming. This requirement to realize God's plan involves the redemption of men, the conquest of all institutions and all spheres of life, the destruction of evil, and at all times to live in terms of a lively hope in Christ and his triumph. Grace was given to man to reestablish him in obedience to God's law, which is the ordained way whereby man's highest good can be realized. To cite Van Til's excellent analysis again, As both the Old and the New Testaments teach that the summum bonum cannot be reached except by the complete destruction of all evil, so both give us a standard in which not one bit of evil is tolerated, but evil must be completely destroyed. No other system of ethics ever demands the complete destruction of evil. Finally, as both teach the summum bonum cannot be fully reached till some time in the future, so both give us a standard that none can fulfill in the present that can be and is fulfilled in the present in a substitutionary way alone, but that will be fulfilled by us in the future. No other system of ethics promises the fulfillment of their ideals in the future, as none of them come from above, so none of them look above. Augustine, as we have noted, declared in terms of scripture, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. When man deflects his being from its ordained purpose, and when man seeks his highest good apart from God and his word, he not only enters into a world of insatiable hunger, anxiety, and chronic discontent, but instead of destroying evil, he increases it. The philosophical quest for man's supreme good has been abandoned by humanistic philosophies and adopted by humanistic politics, science, and sociology. The result is a growing evil of the modern scientific socialist state. Its goal is life, and its end is death. By seeking its supreme good apart from God, humanism ends with no good at all, only despair and death. Biblical faith does not despise the lesser forms of the good. It is a serious error to read Matthew 6, 24-31 as in any sense a condemnation of food, clothing, shelter, planning, or any other material goal. Rather, the promise is that if we seek first, or essentially, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you, Matthew 6.31. These lesser aspects of the good can only be truly realized as the supreme good is sought. The kingdom of God and its law order will give us that stable society in which our tomorrows are made stable by the certainties of a godly law order. Instead of fretting about tomorrow, we take care of today's problems and evils under God's law. That same law assures us that our labors are not in vain in the Lord, and that food, clothing, and shelter in a godly society come readily to those who work and who exercise providence. Thus, to establish God's kingdom in our midst is to assure ourselves of the lesser goods, 
and of a society in which every man dwells safely under his vine arbor and under his fig tree.